You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 75. to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today's episode of the podcast will feature an interview with one of the most unlikely guests that we've had on the show thus far. Pat Butler is a real estate developer who has been living in San Felipe, Mexico for over 20 years. He's the owner of El Dorado Ranch, one of the largest expat communities in the area. I decided to feature this interview with Pat that we recorded in San Felipe, San Felipe on an earlier shoot for our documentary about the Vaquita, Souls of the Vermilion Sea, because Pat has an interesting idea. He wants to legalize the trade in Tatuaba swimbladders and bring back the once active sport fishery for Tatuaba. This idea would be considered highly controversial in most environmental circles, but to many of the fishermen in the region, it actually seems like the natural solution to the crisis faced by both the vaquita and the community as a whole. Fishermen still remember the days when sport fishing for Tatuaba was legal, and because this style of line fishing that was generally used doesn't harm the vaquita, the Tatuaba and their swim bladders could be harvested without harming this critically endangered porpoise. The real question is this. Would the legalization of the Tatuaba swim bladder trade create a spike in demand in China that could lead to more uncontrolled illegal fishing in Mexico? In 2008, ivory stockpiles from the countries of Botswana, South Africa, Namibia, and Zimbabwe were sold on a one-off basis to China and Japan. This sale was supported by the World Wildlife Fund and many other conservation groups based on the idea that this could depress the value of ivory on the world market. Since 2008, however, the price of ivory in China has actually increased uh, quite dramatically, um, so the question is, was this 2008 sale a trigger for the dramatic intensification of the illegal ivory trade that we've seen in the years since? I don't think that anybody can answer that question with 100% certainty. Um, how, however, it does seem plausible to me that this ivory stockpile sale uh, did play some role. Um, so the real question to ask in the context of today's interview with Pat is this. Could this be done in a responsible way that avoids the mistakes that have been made in the past, such as this 2008 ivory stockpile sale? Could a program like this play an important role in saving the vaquita? Let's listen into our interview with Pat, and you can decide for yourself. My name's uh, James Patrick Butler. I go by Pat Butler. Uh, I live in San Felipe, Baja, Mexico. Uh, I came here in 1994, bought a large piece of property. Uh, actually, it was a land lease, which we were able to convert through the years into private property. And so I have a big development here. It's called El Dorado Ranch. Uh, we've sold property to 9,000 owners, and we've built about 2,500 homes. I have a championship golf course and a seaside community on the golf course with uh, 750 home sites and 300 condominiums. 
So we're a big investor, and uh, I'm a developer, and, and we own some other real estate, a couple of hotels. and So I've been a developer here for 21 years. My life before that, as I basically came out of corporate America, I was an uh, international uh, VP with uh, Marriott Corporation and did a lot of globalization work with them overseas. Uh, so kind of used to being outside of the United States uh, doing business and um, so I love Mexico I love our little beach town here it's uh, 22,000 in Mexicans and about 8,000 expats uh, Canadians and Americans that come here in the winter time so um, you know we're we're very connected with the local government state government federal government uh, we have a big passion for what uh, your particular group is interested in, which is really saving these two endemic species of uh, wild uh, sea life here, the vaquita and also the tetuava. The vaquita, as most people know, is the baby porpoise, and uh, of course the tetuava is a giant sea bass, which is excellent succulent eating, and also it's uh, got a bladder, a swim bladder, and it called the Bolche, which has uh, got a worldwide market to it, mostly in the Asian market, and it uh, goes for as much when it gets sold here for $5,000 a kilo, and by the time it gets to market in China, it goes for up to $20,000 a kilo. So the um, it's got a big market value. Uh, my interest is uh, we, we've been struggling here in San Felipe for years with uh, commercial fishing and trying to keep that under control in the right ways and and uh, it's a very hard thing to do. I mean 20% of our population here is from fishing families and so to take the nets out of the water which we've done now the Mexican government because of trying to protect these two endemic species uh, has decided to pull the nets out of the water and disallow commercial fishing for the next two years. So we have an opportunity now to relook at the Sea of Cortez, the upper part of the Sea of Cortez, uh, and see how we can manage uh, the fishery. And uh, obviously, our hopes are that you know we can. My big hope and my friend Octavio Escalani, uh, our hopes are that we can bring sports fishing back uh, into the community and we know sports fishing will bring at least 10,000 fishermen a year here a year and which will spend money on hotels restaurants and help the economy the overall economy of the town and we would like to take what has become a black market for this uh, the swim bladder and turn it into a white market where we can literally use these sports fishing permits to catch the fish in a controlled manner and not take more of the population out than can repopulate itself uh, in a year and basically uh, sell the swim bladder on the commercial market uh, as a white market product and not a black market product, which it's become, uh, and take the majority of that money and put back into the town so that we can do things that are for educational purposes with schools, hospitals, sports programs, educate the kids primarily, uh, clean up the town, uh, not overly commercialize it. We're not into the commercialization business. 
uh, what we really want to just clean the town up. And we've got a God-given product out there that we've got no product cost for every year. And to just manage the thing in the right way, the fishery in the right way, uh, and to take the fishing families that have lost the opportunity to do commercial fishing and give them other opportunities to sports fish with us and also fish farm with us uh, so that we can replace the jobs that they've lost and the income that they've lost, although they're being subsidized now for these two years that they pulled the nets out of the water. Jacques Cousteau says it's uh, you know the world aquarium and it's got 800 species of uh, fish life in it, and we would like to, you know, play our part in doing the job that we have, uh, or the opportunity that we have, to save the fishery here in San Felipe, and to save these two endangered species. So that's kind of with myself and my friend Octavio Escalani. We've made a big kind of dedicated effort. We're very thankful that you guys from the scientific world and from the ocean marine biology world are here to pick up on the interests that we mutually have uh, to, to save the two endangered species. And I think it's a big deal. For Mexico, we're one of 160 countries in the world that signed a pact about 15 years ago to preserve endangered species in one another's country. So it's an opportunity for everybody to do the right thing. And I'm sure that the Mexican government, I mean, I know that they're very aware of the situation with our two endangered species here. In fact, Peña Nieto, the president, Peña Nieto, was here a couple of months ago, and and he's the guy that actually announced that we're going to take the nets out of the water uh, for this 50-mile radius for the next two years to let the population of these two endangered species uh, try and survive. And of course, the vaquita, because they only calve every two years, I mean, it's going to be a real struggle, even with the maximum amount of help and financial help, (laughs) all the help we can get, it's going to be a challenge to save this uh, endangered species. So... We're hoping that, you know, the world will kind of wake up to what our mission is and uh, we would love for, you know, to have all the support we can have, not only from the Mexican government, but from the environmentalists around the world and from the families that are out there with uh, enough wealth to be able to help uh, in the private sector with something that we want to see as a sustainable cause. Uh, just if I can talk briefly about the economics of the Tatuava, uh, seriously, with this this fish bladder, which has become a, a you know a, a prized product in the world of the Asian world, especially China, that um, they do pay quite a bit of money for this product, and it's got a big market to it, and. Um, but if we, we've already talked with uh, Conal David True, who is a doctor who reintroduced the Tatuava to the Sea of Cortez about 15, no, about 20 years ago. I've, I've been here for 21 years, and I came in 94, and I think David started his program in 1993. But um, we now have a population of Tatuava out there, and this giant sea bass gets to be six feet and 200 plus pounds. 
uh, and it's the only place in the world that this fish uh, habitats and so uh, our issue there is that if we were able to uh, properly harvest the fish bladder, this bolche, and put it into the Chinese market as a white market product, then we know we could raise income on a sustainable basis every year of about anywhere from 25 to 50 million dollars, which our plan is to put that money back into town for infrastructure, schools, hospitals, primarily education, sports programs, and help the kids here become totally bilingual, bicultural, and be able to be students that are prepared to go on for higher levels of education. So, um, you know, it's I'm a 71-year-old guy, and I've got, you know, priorities in my own life right now. I've got eight kids, and thank God they're all educated, and they're all doing well. None of them are in my business, uh, and that's on purpose. But, uh, but we have an opportunity here to help a town that... Uh, really could use the help and we've got uh, natural you know God's natural product right out there in the Sea of Cortez that we could take and manage in the right way and do a lot of really good things for, for this town and you know to further scientific causes like you guys are involved in right now so you know, they're good intentions, good purposes, and it's like anything. You know, nothing happens unless we put it into action. So the plea here and the cause and the challenge is that we do have a two-year window where there are no nets in the water, and we would love to use that time to really look hard at the preservation of this aquarium out here and look at what we should be doing to, to save the marine life and, and the Sea of Cortez. And the other thing about the Sea of Cortez, which is important, is it's the only major body of water that I can think of or know in the world that's owned by one country. So we don't have to deal with a lot of other, you know, uh, political issues outside of the country to deal with this specific issue with saving these two endangered species. So, you know, that's I appreciate the opportunity to express myself and. And uh, the, the thing that I think is important here in the Sea of Cortez right now, and, and I, I think if we can make a, enough of a, a movement with the effort right now, I think that the nets will probably be, hopefully the two-year ban will become permanent and uh, will let the fishery come back to its total life. And between sports fishing and um, managing the fishery the right way, It'll be a big economic benefit for the entire town. I think we'll save a couple of endangered species in the world, which will be a great thing. And we'll be able to educate the people here about the importance of keeping the Sea of Cortez clean. A lot of people, when they think of someone, a, a developer, right, you know, someone who's in your profession, you know, they don't think of environmental conservation, right? Was there sort of a starting point where you realize, like, oh, this... You know, this ecosystem is, is really important and, and, you know, maybe important for your business as well. Well, I, I think for me, I mean, it's just a, you know, kind of a ingrained thing in me that you just kind of do the right thing. I mean, it's not a real tough decision. You ask yourself, you know, the yes and no, right or wrong, and you just do the right thing. So it's an opportunity. I mean, I'm, I've invested enough money in town and I've 
you know, I was a developer or the businessman of the year in Baja in 2006. I've had a lot of recognition by the Mexican government and for the stuff we've done. Um, so I've, I've got enough of a platform to make a stance with something like this. I did the same thing when I owned a property over in Mazalan, Estrella del Mar, and we did a big program to save the endangered turtle, the green turtle, sea turtle. And we did a program over there where now we're releasing 250,000 turtles a year back to the Sea of Cortez in the Pacific Ocean. So, you know, it's, uh, I mean, I do things that, that, I mean, it's kind of a common sense thing to me. I mean, I, when I built my golf course here, I used, I knew I couldn't spend the money to put fresh water and I didn't want to deplete fresh water supply from the town. So I went out and found paspalum grass and the halophyte uh, plant life uh, is sustainable off of high salinity water. So I irrigate my golf course with high salinity water. I don't have to deplete fresh water supply. You know, we just try to do things, you know, the right way. And obviously this is enough of a cause to put a lot of energy into it. It's become a passion of mine. I mean, my passion's also to finish my development, but also I, we have a big passion for my wife and I for the work we've done in town. I've got an educational program where we have put a, over 100 kids through college university, and it's a nonprofit. I mean, I'm not a super environmentalist. I mean, I do think that preserving wildlife and keeping things in its natural state's a very important deal. The making the lightest footprint we have to make while we're here is a, a good thing to do and uh, we don't want to take more than we actually need to survive on uh, out of the planet so I think they're just things that you know you can naturally intuitively think through and and do. Do you remember like being here and, and hearing about I mean did you know about the Vikita before you came here or was there I, I really didn't know about the Vaquita or even the Tatuava until um, I heard about them reintroducing the giant sea bass. And if you go around town, and even in my own properties in my hotel, we have pictures of the old. And I became a very good friend with a guy by the name of Tony Reyes, who was the oldest and biggest sports fishing operation here in San Felipe. And Tony came here back in the 50s. And... So you'll see pictures of Tony as a young man uh, when he started his sports fishing operation, and um, all the. Uh, and then in my hotel, I started. He, he and I became friends, and he started keeping his fishing groups that were go out on his 105 foot boat, uh, keeping them at my hotel. So I've got a. I went to Tony. I have a collection of his old pictures, and I have them in my hotel. And he actually passed away. But his son still runs a business. But um, I got to know about the Tatuava through Tony and then the Vaikita also. And uh, once I understood that, that the species was only uh, found in this particular part of, you know, in the upper Sea of Cortez and the only place in the world that it habitats, then it became of more interest to me. And then I actually researched and found the whole history of the Tatuava and the fact that we fished the Tatuava population out of here once before 
And the fellow I mentioned earlier, David Conal True, who is a scientific uh, marine biologist guy at the, at the University of Baja California over in Ensenada, Dr. David reintroduced it to Tuave here, uh, the fingerlings, back in 1993, a year before I permanently came. And uh, then I became more, much more interested in it. And I really didn't know about the, the, the bulchy, the bladder, and the value of it on the market until uh, they started a big black market with it. And it's an endangered species, and they Ill illegally catch it with nets. And, um, you know, they started catching guys that were commercializing and selling on the black market the bulche. And I saw the value of it. And then it kind of came to life to me in my own thought process that, you know, if we did this in a commercial way and we saved the, what I call the patrimony for this town uh, and harvested that bulchy and took it to market on a, as a white market product and used the majority of the money to come back into town to do infrastructure, schools, hospitals, education, that type of thing, that it just made common sense. I mean, it's sustainable. We could do it every year, year after year. We don't have to ask the federal government or the state government for any funds to do things. I mean, we've got it right out there. It's God's given, you know, uh, product uh, uh, specialized to this part of the world, and we ought to do the right thing with it. So it, you, you kind of, you explained a little bit about how this, this idea works, right, this idea of sort of, uh, uh, you know, turning this black market of the, you know, illegal trade into profits from bladders into this legal trade and taking the money and bringing it to the community, but, I mean, sort of break that down, break that idea down for me and tell me, like, exactly how... Well, my, you know, I mean, obviously there's a lot of other heads that need to get around this other than my own. Sure. I mean, on a, in a very simplistic way, my idea is to get a, a foundation, a board, an outside independent board to manage the process. Uh, obviously there's going to be, uh, you know, there will be, we have to get the federal government and the state government to go along with things, mostly the federal government. Uh, to let us uh, introduce sports fishing. We need to prove that we have a population of fish out there that will make it, let it, allow it to be sustainable. Um, and we need to organize the thing so that we know exactly where these funds go back to so that we don't have, uh, you know, corruption involved or any misuse of funds. So I, the idea is to create a board to, cre to get the government to buy into the idea of letting us do a sports fishing permit here. And just to give you some simplistic numbers, I mean, and I've talked to the doctor that reintroduced the Tatuava back here, that if we were allowed to uh, take uh, two, uh, let's say we sold 10,000 permits a year at $250 a year, uh, that's two and a half million dollars, and we were allowed to catch two fish per permit, which is twenty thousand to twelve a year. And out of the twenty thousand, we were able to harvest ten thousand kilos of bulche fish bladder at five thousand dollars of the mar a year going out of this market. Uh, you know, it's a fifty million dollar bill, and of the fifty million, if eighty percent of that outside of the cost and taxes and everything else could come back to this community 
it would make a huge impact here and and we could really do the right things and and have a, a very vibrant community here with well-educated kids and great hospital systems and we could do you know medical tourism we could do all kinds of things uh, especially as we all know with my age group uh, and the baby boomers you know the medical costs are just going to get more and more higher and and we all need services and so there there are other things with with those kind of funds that we can do to enrich the community and 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 you know put them to good causes so so that's kind of my simplistic idea of it um managing it all i think needs to be done the right way and i think again if we can take this window of opportunity this two years of that and we're not really trying to go after the black market at all the fact is that nets aren't allowed in these waters for the next two years uh, and if we can take that period of time and through sports fishing because the foreigners that would come here to fish this fish and believe me, we got 70 million registered fishermen in the United States. We only have 30 million golfers. So we've got a big population of sports fishing people in the world. And if this is the only place in the world where they can catch the giant sea bass, selling 10,000 permits a year is not a big deal. We'll pre-sell them. And it, uh, again... Uh, so, I mean, just... Yeah. Just to kind of clarify, like, I mean, you're going to sell these permits to all these fishermen, um, and but are you're going to sell them the permit under the provision that they don't get to keep the bladder? Yes, that's part of the permit. They're not allowed to take the bladder. So we'll take the bladder and properly harvest the bladder, and we'll get some environmentalists, some, some marine biology folks to work with us in doing that and make sure it's properly packed and taken to the market in the right way. We have two uh, flights from Shanghai that come weekly into Tijuana. Uh, we'll also you know, save a mess on the border for the U.S. Border Patrol because they right now are trying to find this bladder going across the border illegally. And um, so we can stop all of that. Uh, or a majority of it. I'm not saying that, you know, the Sierra Cortez, the Tatuava aren't 100% in San Felipe. They're a little bit south also. But for our area up here, we can get the product to market uh, on an international flight that comes directly into to Tijuana right now and, you know, and get transfer of funds done properly. And like I say, with the proper board and oversight management, you know, we can manage the use of the funds and stuff. So that's kind of the general idea. Gotcha. So I wonder, you know, sort of what state this idea is in, right? I mean, is this just sort of like a pie in the sky idea that you've had? Or, I mean, have you pitched this to government folks? I mean, is this something that's in development? I mean, what's the next step here? I have talked to the governor about it. I've talked to the Secretary of Tourism about it. I've talked to the ex-Secretary of Tourism for Baja, and the under, he was the undersecretary also for, the, for all of Mexico, undersecretary of tourism. Um, so I have talked about it. I've talked about it with a couple of very good friends of mine who are wealthy guys that are retired, and, but they sports fish here still, Mexican uh, folks. And... Um, so I've got a kind of a groundswell, a little groundswell of, uh, you know, uh, support for the idea. Um, some of my guys, uh, some of the Mexican 
uh, fellows that I've talked to uh, have kind of said to me, you know, you need to be careful about spreading the numbers and the whole idea because we don't want the idea to get contaminated and contamination can happen quickly. So it it needs to be done, uh, you know, in the right way. And But I know that if we don't get the word out there and I really can't get the idea into the marketplace that it's uh, it's going to, you know, it may never happen. I mean, we have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity right now. I mean, we need to get this thing formalized and get it in the right channels and get it uh, nurtured and papered up in the right way so we can make it a reality. So there's still a question about enforcement, right? Yeah. Enforcement of the illegal fishing activity that's, that is still going on out there. Um, because, you know, this whole idea, it sort of hinges on that. Sure, right? absolutely. Um, so, I, I, I don't know, maybe you can just sort of talk about the importance or sort of the role of the Mexican government in uh, sort of creating this situation that will allow an idea like this to... I mean, my, my hopes are that, uh, seriously, we, we have uh, 500 military here. I have 250 Marines and 250 soldiers. We have a general and an admiral here. Um, the Mexican military guys are, you know, for the most part, very, very legit. They're not corrupted. They're, everybody has to serve in the military as a man... Uh, you know, uh, so young kids come into the military. It's a good, healthy, clean environment. We, we're very involved with them. My hopes are that uh, the whole enforcement opportunity will be turned over to the, to the Navy and to the Admiral. And, um, you know, one of the reasons we have those guys here, seriously, is because of management of the narco-trafficking and the drug trafficking because we're the last major town before you get up to Mexicali and cross the border with drugs and stuff. So so they're here for a reason, but you know, the value of this fish bladder is at the same market value as drugs. So uh, the other good reason uh, to do all of this is to, like I say, to make it into a white market and then use the the uh, the uh, facilities we already have here and the manpower we already have here to then, believe me, with, the, with 250 Marines here and an Admiral here and drones and everything else, we can manage and police and control this thing in the proper way. That's a big decision for the Mexican government because, but again, the, we're we're one of 160 countries that signed a pact to save an endangered species, and we've got natural resources and human resources right here that are already funded, and it's a good way to turn that manpower into uh, something that can be very productive for them, productive for the community, and, you know, and, and again, it's just doing the right thing. So you brought up an interesting point, which is, you know, the connection between drugs and the cartels here with this illegal tobacco trade. Um, I mean, is that something that worries you as far as either, you know, the actual ability of the government to enforce this or your sort of pitching of this idea? I mean, is that a concern that you have and sort of pushing this yourself? 
Well, I mean, I mean, for my own uh, personal well-being, and you know, my wife and I live here, and and obviously uh, there there is a little bit of a concern, you know, that people have expressed to me that you should, you know, be careful about that. But you know, seriously, it's a bigger issue than my own life. So do I worry about my own life because I'm going to stick my neck out to try and support something that I really think became a passion of mine and should be done? No, I don't. You know, it's, uh, this is much more valuable than one life. So I don't worry about that. Uh, the big issue for me is that uh, everybody steps up and does their part to do, again, do the right thing. I mean, the whole story here is about two endangered species that saved the town and uh, continue to be, you know, inhabitants of uh, the world community. So that's that's the bottom line. You know, it's not a, I mean, I, uh, you know, anytime you're going to take a position and do something that has a little bit of risk associated with it, whether it's risking your own money in a business venture or whatever, you know, again, there are risks out there. There are always risks to do things. But, but you know, if, if some of us don't step up and make a point of it, it won't happen, and we'll lose to endangered species and a big opportunity. So, it's, like I say, it's, more, it's a bigger issue than one life. So I don't worry about that. <laughs> All right, that was our conversation with real estate developer Pat Butler. I love how direct and unafraid Pat is when discussing these controversial issues. He clearly has a passion for this issue and is committed to seeing it through. Wildlands producer Sean Bogle will actually be heading down to San Felipe, Mexico this week for one final week of shooting to put together our half-hour version of Souls of the Vermilion Sea. Sean will be meeting with Pat and getting an update on his sport fishing proposal, so keep an eye on the Souls of the Vermilion Sea blog for Sean's updates from the field. Be sure to head on over to the show notes page for this episode where you'll find links to uh, that Souls of the Vermilion Sea website and blog, um, where you can see updates from Sean, as well as some additional information on both the legal and illegal uh, wildlife trade issues that we discussed uh, here on the show. Those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org slash EOC75. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky, with sound recording assistance from Joe Shaw. Our theme music is by The Humidors. 